I love my daughter, Andy. She is, um, she is five and a half, as I've mentioned before. She's quick to correct you. She should say five. It's five and a half. I love Andy, but at 445 this morning, she was up for adoption, y'all. Um, she, uh, <laughs> she woke up for no reason other than I can imagine just the adrenaline of Halloween Day being here. Uh, and she chose to not just wake up, but to then put her Google speaker on Kids Bop at full blast. Um, not the brightest move for the early riser. So then, of course, I go in there and I have less than pastoral words to offer her in that moment. Um, and then she refuses to go back to sleep until about 5.51. I said about. It wasn't about. It was 5.51 when I heard her brother's door open because I guess he had made even the faintest sound. And oh, and her utter brilliance she decides to take his toy piano you know those old ding, 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 toy piano, place it into his crib and then crawl into the crib with him and they started a piano concert at 5 51 this morning um i have had less than christian thoughts running through my head for many hours now i've got i'm feeling a bit like a zombie on this halloween which is fitting uh, because we're going to study a story this morning that sounds kind of like a zombie tale, but it's not. Uh, in fact, if I were to call it that, it might be a heresy. But hey, what's a good sermon if not a little bit of heresy out of the gates, right? We're going to study the story of Lazarus this morning. And I'm going to already appreciate your grace with me. If any of my points I make today are less than coherent, you can send your emails to andyjane at gmail.com. Um, don't send them to me. Reason we're looking at Lazarus' story this morning, it comes to us in the Gospel of John. The reason we're reading it is uh, we've been in this series called Beginnings, Endings, and In-Betweens. We've talked about baptism, uh, which we just experienced. We've talked about communion. We've talked about the way that we pursue truth, capital T, truth, specifically through the lens of what it means to be a Wesleyan and a Methodist. Wesleyan being our theological tradition here at AUMC and Methodist being our denominational tradition. And today we're going to talk about sounds fitting on Halloween Sunday. We're going to talk about the afterlife and about resurrection, these concepts that get a lot of airplay uh, in the Christian church, especially the American church. And yet there's a whole lot of what I find to be unhelpful theology, um, perhaps theologies that you've grown up in, that you have heard, theologies that I've encountered in my life and churches that I've attended. Um, and, and the interesting thing that I think we'll find, you know, we can't study all of Scripture in one Sunday, but as you read through the New Testament, you realize that Jesus has remarkably little to say about the afterlife, even though we seem to be very fixated on it. That's the uh, an abundance of questions I get as a pastor, and other pastors can attest to this too, that you know, we seem to be very fixated on the afterlife, what happens after we die. And yet Jesus always seems to be calling us to something else, to center ourselves in, in something else that seems to be right before us. And it has to do with this concept of resurrection. And that's really what the story of Lazarus is about. It, it's a narrative story that seeks to um, give meaning and understanding around this theological concept of resurrection, what it is and why it matters, not just for those who have died, but really for those of us who have Monday mornings to face, right? So that's what we're going to talk about today, afterlife, resurrection, uh, and why it's not just about what happens after we die. We're going to be looking at the Gospel of John beginning in chapter 11. Um, this is the story of Lazarus. If you've never read the Gospel of John before, it's unique amongst the four Gospels. It doesn't share the same kind of source material that the other three do. There's a lot of stories unique to John's Gospel. For our purposes today, one thing that's important to know as we get into this text is that there's kind of two halves to this Gospel. The first half is this what we call the signs and wonders of John's Gospel. This is uh, John's Gospel is, is full of Jesus' performance 
performing these miracles, these signs, these wonders uh, that serve two purposes. One, they reveal his glory and his um, identity as the Son of God in increasing fashion, and the resurrection of Lazarus is the pinnacle of that. Um, but secondly, not only is, is his claim to being God's son rising, the tension with his surrounding community is also rising because there are people uh, who sit in positions of power, both cultural and religious, who are, are increasingly aggravated by Jesus's signs and wonders a, because of the miracles themselves, but more importantly, because he's winning people over in greater and greater numbers to his movement. And when you're in a position of power, what do you hate? Somebody else who begins to grow their own movement of power, right? And so this, the, the story of Lazarus's death and resurrection serves to be that kind of turning point. This is the story that, that, that is going to lead the Pharisees and others to say, we've had enough, we've got to put an end to this guy, Jesus. But it's also the story that we will find um, reveals his identity in a clearer way and reveals, I believe, a lot to us and for our lives. So this is going to be one of those messages where we kind of walk through the text and we stop along the way and I'll do my best to point out some of those blink and you'll miss it uh, important nuggets, contextual clues. And my prayer is that by the end of this message that we could have something, um, maybe not the answers we perhaps think that we want, but, but maybe even more importantly, the questions that we can hold that could help guide us in our Monday and our Tuesday and our Wednesday and our daily living. So, John chapter 11, beginning in verse 17, it says this. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him while Mary stayed at the home. So a few things to point out here for us to keep in mind. First, it said Lazarus had been dead for four days. Now, in the Jewish tradition, which is what Jesus is, is coming out of and what he is, um, he is uh, confronting in his own culture, this Jewish tradition held that uh, for the first three days after death, you were only, as we would say in Princess Bride language, mostly dead. Right? You'd only be mostly dead. Um, they, they didn't believe so much in a soul as like the separate part of us that can live beyond our bodies. Instead, they believed that our bodies really were who we were and that the breath of God, that thing that breathes life into us, that, that breath of God present in creation is what hovers over our bodies for like three days after we die. And then on the fourth day, the breath of God leaves and we are good and real dead at that point. So for Lazarus to be in the tomb for four days means that Lazarus is dead in his Jewish culture and tradition. Now, the names Lazarus and Bethany are important as well. Lazarus is a short form or almost like nickname of the Hebrew name Eliezer. Eliezer, you may remember, is the name of Aaron's son, Moses' brother's son, Eliezer. And the name Eliezer means God helps. God helps. It's almost as though the story is trying to give us a clue as to where this is going. Bethany is, comes from the Hebrew word bait, which means house. It, it, Bethany means house of affliction, home of affliction. Hmm. Jesus is going to a place called the home of affliction where God will help. Lastly, it says that Bethany is two miles from Jerusalem. Remember how I said there were these power struggles that Jesus was encountering? Well, the power was centered in his people in Jerusalem, and so Jesus is coming closer to Jerusalem than he has been 
two miles away, I mean, that's a relatively short walk in those days, to a place called the house of affliction, a place of danger for him where God will help. The last little clue in here that we should notice is it says that many Jews came to be with Martha and Mary. Now you talk about blink and you'll miss it. Many Jews, what does that mean? Well, in, in those days, there was a cultural practice when you were grieving, there were these people that were almost like professional mourners, right? This was a cultural practice for the Jewish people where um, there would be this community of folks that you didn't necessarily know who were essentially paid to go and help you grieve, right? Their, their job in life was to lament and to, and to uh, mourn and to grieve and to just sort of sit in the finality and totality of death. And I'll say more about the Jewish thought towards death in a moment. But you've got these many Jews, these, these people of mourning, of grieving, of death, who have surrounded Martha and Mary. And that's the, that's the environment that Jesus steps into. We continue in verse 21, and it says this. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So let's talk about Martha's response there. She says, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You know, our understanding of afterlife today is, is a complicated amalgamation of 2,000 years of Christian theology and also Dante's Inferno and pop culture references and a whole goulash of different things, right? It's very different than the concept of afterlife that Martha would have understood as a first century Jew. Now, now, the ancient Jewish tradition up until relatively recent history for Martha had held that death was kind of the end, right? That's why so much of the Hebrew scriptures talk about the, the totality and finality of death, right? Death is this thing to be avoided because when you are dead, you are done, right? The, the, the concept of, of afterlife, there really wasn't one. There's this place called Sheol that people will misidentify as something of a hell, but it had nothing to do with hell in terms of punishment or judgment. There was no sort of duality of good and bad going to different places. It's just when you die, you go to this place called Sheol, and it really could be translated as like your grave. It's just the place that the body goes when you die, and that's it, and there's nothing more. And then a couple hundred years before Martha and Jesus are alive, there's this book called Daniel that's written. It's a book written, born out of exile. The Israelites had been exiled into Babylon. And, and in this book, this theology develops for the Jewish people of this concept of resurrection, but not a resurrection for the here and now. No, a resurrection for many, many, many years and generations and eras from now. And it was one of those theologies that you know what people need when they look around them and they think, is everything over? Is this the end? Is death really the end for us? And, and they need that hope that says, you know what, even if everything goes in the, the can right now, even if, if everything goes terribly, even if we never leave exile, one day, one day the family of God will rise again. Right? So that's the kind of theology that Martha is, is, um, is espousing here. This was the predominant view in Jesus' day, not for everybody, but for most Jews in this land. They would have believed, like Martha did, that resurrection was this thing that we hope for one day long away. And in response to this, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That day of justice that you say you're waiting for, that, that day of resurrection, he says, that is now, that is me, that is here. Those who believe in me, he says, even though they die, will live. 
and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? See, I think sometimes in, in Christian theology, we can get so hung up on heaven as this place that maybe if we're good enough, we can get to one day, right? You hear it in the songs and in the liturgies of maybe churches that you grew up in. Maybe you hear it in songs and liturgies and in this church at times. It's interwoven into our tradition, this idea that heaven is this place that we can hope for. And yes, that can bring a great amount of comfort to people who are in serious houses of affliction. And yet, Jesus says heaven is not simply this hope for future. Right? If we're saying, well, everything is terrible and there's no hope for today, and thank goodness heaven is out there so that one day things can get better, Jesus is saying, no, 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 you misunderstand. You'll read the Lord's Prayer again. Heaven is more than simply a hope for a future. It is this idea, this spirit, this place that we are called to invite into today. Now, we're going to talk about that more next week as we talk about eternity and what we are working towards as a community of faith. But for now, let us hear the words of Jesus and remember that heaven is more than simply a hoped-for future. Jesus tells Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. And then Martha says something incredible. She says to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. Now, that can sound like a pretty, you know, dead giveaway for those of us sitting in 21st century DFW. But y'all, what we just heard was the confession of faith in the Gospel of John, and it was uttered by Martha. In the other three Gospels, it's the Apostle Peter, right? Jesus' right-hand man who confesses this faith during the moment of transfiguration. But here in John, it's Martha, a common woman whom nobody knew, but Jesus called friend, and she's the one who confesses the faith in Christ, who says, you are the Messiah, the Son of God. She gets it right in a way that none of his disciples did. I like the Gospel of John, do you? Story keeps going. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, the teacher, the rabbi, is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her, saw, with her in the house consoling her saw Mary get up and quickly go out, and they followed her because they thought she was going to the tomb to weep there. So they were doing their job. They were going to weep alongside her. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she doesn't say anything else. You know, Martha says, but I know that anything you want to do, you can do now. Mary, Mary is not there yet. She is sitting in this anger. Do you hear the anger dripping from her voice? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. I find it powerful that Jesus doesn't offer her a pithy response. Have you ever been in the receiving line at a funeral where you heard every last, every worst word that you could have heard? The things that people say that they think are going to be helpful, but really just try to move you on from whatever pain you're experiencing. God just needed another angel. The Lord works in mysterious ways. His plans are at work. Just trust, right? 
If you've ever heard those words and found them incredibly unhelpful, I believe you're in good company this morning. And I think you're in good company with Mary and with Jesus. He doesn't try to offer some empty words that he knows are not going to uh, console her, not going to fix everything, not to be make everything better. In fact, Jesus positions himself with her and finds his own spirit greatly disturbed and troubled. We'll talk about that in a moment. But for now, I think it's powerful for us to recognize that the, the resurrection that Jesus is about to profess and proclaim the resurrection that he's calling Martha into and Mary into and you and I into is not a resurrection that asks us to dismiss or to avoid the realities of death. And by that, what I mean is we live in the real world. And we need a theology and a savior and a way of living that acknowledges as such. I am so tired. I'm so tired of preachers standing places like these offering a, a theology of Christianity that says basically whatever troubles you're encountering, just get over it. Just believe in Jesus and everything will be okay. Well, guess what? I believed in Jesus for 33 years. I believe in Jesus a whole heck of a lot. And my life isn't always okay. Death is still a real thing. Jesus doesn't ask us to, to follow a resurrection that, that promises life without death. Instead, the resurrection that Jesus promises us is a life beyond death. A life that stares death in the face, that receives it not as the totality and final action in life as maybe we had once before, but it that sees it as a reality, but not the end. That there is more to life than death. No matter what kind of stranglehold death may have on us as a people, as individuals, as communities, life is still possible, even beyond death. It's one of the reasons why I'm a Wesleyan. Wesleyan theology, I, I, I appreciate that it doesn't try to wave a magic wand over my problems and make them go away. It allows me to be merry at times and to just be mad. Do you need a faith that lets you just be mad? even holding true to resurrection, even knowing that in your bones, don't you want a faith that lets you just be mad? Give me a minute, Mary says. When Jesus saw her weeping, it says, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, it says again, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. The language there is imprecise. In fact, it's of great argument by scholars. Was he feeling compassion? Was he feeling anger? Was he feeling uh, frustration? Was he feeling confusion? What was he feeling? We don't really know. The language is too rich, too big, too broad. And he says to them, where have you laid him? And then the Jews who were gathered there said, Lord, come and see. And so then it says, Jesus began to weep. In some translations, just two words, Jesus wept. What Jesus was feeling was too big for words. Even too big for the word grief, which captures a lot. Grief is that weird mix of love and compassion and also anger and hurt and sadness all wrapped up into one. But even that, Scripture says, can't possibly sum up how Jesus is feeling in that moment. As he considers not just the death of Lazarus, not just the mourning of, of his friends Martha and Mary, but also the way this community has been so oriented around the totality and finality of death. And so in lieu of words, it simply says, Jesus wept. Don't miss that, church. When Scripture decides that words can't speak to something, that only the tears can talk, we ought to take notice. 
I go to therapy, which should come as not a shock to anyone in this room. If I didn't, you'd probably think that I should. Um, I love therapy. It's a wonderful thing. I go to see Terry. Terry's my man. I call it Terry time. Um, it's my way of minimizing it because I like to use humor to deflect. Uh, I'm really good at that. Um, so when I go in and talk to Terry, because I'm a one on the Enneagram, I just talk about what I think all the time and what I think about things, and life is pretty good, and I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about that. And about six months into our time together, uh, Terry said, Scott, I think there's something beneath your thinking. I, I, I want to ask you, um, if the tears could talk, what would they say? I don't like you, Terry. <laughs> if the tears could talk, what would they say? And now that's become our shorthand. Whenever Terry can realize that I'm sitting in there and I'm slathering on a, a big old load of uh, bologna sandwich, uh, it, he'll simply look me in the eyes and say, Scott, if the tears could talk. Oh, Terry, oh, Terry. you know, it's, I become a real mess real fast. Um, I think sometimes we're allowed to let our tears do the talking. In fact, I believe Jesus models for us the way to the resurrected life. Uh, we can't avoid the grief, right? We got to go through it. We got to go through the death. We got to go through the grief. We've got to let the tears do the talking if we want to understand what resurrection is truly about. And then the, the, the folks that were gathered around him, they get it so desperately wrong. Some of the Jews said, see how, they, how he loved him, it says. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? And they don't understand the fullness of why Jesus is crying there. In fact, none of us do. I wonder if that's scripture's way of saying, don't you dare try to get too far inside the heart and mind of Christ here. Just let him cry. Just let him cry. And then the story continues. It says, Jesus, again, greatly disturbed, came to the tomb it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Does that sound familiar, Easter people? Jesus said, take away the stone. And Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench because he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone. So remember how I said that there's this underlying tension that's rising throughout the Gospel of John. And here in chapter 11, it's, it's about to hit a raging boil because now Jesus is doing something truly scandalous. Remember how I said the Jewish tradition was around these constructs of death and life and that death was final and total and everything in your life of faith was meant to avoid death and to pursue life. And that's what the concepts of sin and righteousness were all wrapped up in. And here Jesus is asking his followers to not just embrace death, but to step into a tomb where Mary and Martha say, there is a stench. Lazarus has been dead for four days. What are you doing? This almost feels like desecration. This would have been a grave, pun very much intended, church, a grave sin to be interacting with tombs and with corpses. This would have put at risk his followers, not just standing in the community. They may have not been allowed into religious community at that point. The kind of uncleanliness and unholiness that he was asking them to take on was severe. I find it an interesting tension here that the only way for Lazarus to be blessed with the gift and miracle of resurrection is for Jesus' followers to first risk their own holiness or cleanliness by moving closer into the stench and opening up the tomb. Think about that. 
Now, I've heard a lot of sermons by a lot of firebrands about, you know, fearing hell and running away from hell. And we've talked about how hell really wasn't much of a concept in Jesus's day. And the closest he ever comes to talking about anything like it is a landfill, like a literal landfill. That's the closest he comes. Um, but I've heard these sermons about fearing hell and running away from hell and embracing heaven. And I still don't quite know what that's about. But here's what I do know is that the same folks that keep telling me to run from hell and to fear hell are the same kind of folks that want me to value my own cleanliness and personal holiness above anybody else's in the world. And that's in such an incredibly selfish and warped and I dare say anti-Christ way of viewing the world around us. Rather than calling us to fear hell, oh my gosh, if you don't hear anything else this morning, Jesus calls us to seek out sulfur in tombs. If you believe it is possible to follow Jesus without sacrificing cleanliness and your own personal holiness, the sake of resurrection, to step into tombs so that Lazarus can be called out, my friends, this is the wrong place for you. This is not the movement for you. The movement of Jesus is about laying down those parts of ourselves that want to be so much more righteous than everybody else and want to run screaming from hell. And instead, God, Jesus and God call us to seek out the sulfur, to seek out the tombs. When's the last time I intentionally went towards the stench in my life? When's the last time I rolled away the stone of the tomb and risked my own standing, risked my own righteousness, risked my own holiness or cleanliness for the sake of another? I told you I'd offer more questions than answers. Story concludes. I know I'm running a little bit long. I appreciate your patience with my zombie brain. Story concludes. Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here so that they may believe that you sent me. Jesus is doing something with the crowd. Keep that in mind. When he had said this, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of burial cloth and his face wrapped in a burial cloth. And Jesus said to them, remember the professional mourners, the people of grief and death, Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Lazarus is not the only character to experience resurrection in this story. Lazarus walks out of a tomb, sure. But Jesus takes a community that had, been, that had become so gripped with the finality and totality of death, who had built a system of mourning and grieving because they couldn't envision a more hopeful future. They couldn't see anything on the other side. And Jesus reorients them and makes them the ones who unbind Lazarus from his burial cloths. He doesn't just resurrect Lazarus. He resurrects an entire community. That's the kind of power that we're talking about today. On the other side of resurrection, for Lazarus and for the people is liberation. On the other side of resurrection is liberation. And as a resurrected people, the resurrected life is a liberated and liberating life. Maybe today you need to hear your voice so you can come stepping out of the tomb. Maybe today is the day to hear Scott, Flip, Kenton, online, my name John. 
there's a John, he's freaking out right now. Maybe today is the day you need to hear your name cried out. But maybe today is the day when we all see a brother, a sister, a sibling step out of the tomb and we realize our call as a resurrected people is to aid in that liberation. So that the sting of death is no more. Not avoided, but no more. As a people of resurrection, may we be the liberated and the liberating. May we be the ones who Christ called into the sulfur and the stench and the tomb. May we be the ones who see heaven as a possibility for today, not just an eternity to hope for. May we be the ones who say yes when Christ's name, Christ calls our name. Amen.